You know, the title of our message this morning, and occurs to me, might sound rather obvious to many of you, but it's not when you consider how often in human history the idea that Jesus was a real human person has come under attack. Um, you know, in the very first of the pastoral letters from the Apostle John, it's like he's going out of his way to prove this point. He mentions that, you know, they had seen Jesus with their eyes, that they had touched him with their hands. In chapter 4, he even says that if someone denies that Jesus came in the flesh, then he's not of God. So my question this morning is, what's with all the fuss? (laughs) Why are people so concerned about it? Well, the idea that Jesus was not a real person uh, was complete, or or was was a real person, was always ridiculous to the eyes of ears of human history. We know for a fact that the the Jewish people to whom this news first came, uh, the idea that Jesus would become a man, that God would become a man, was the last thing anyone expected. The Greco-Roman culture around them even thought that the divine could not take on human flesh without itself necessarily being corrupted. Uh, We know that Eastern cultures believe that the material world was an illusion, something to be run away from, and that the divine would call us away from our sort of fleshly existence. Finally, you know, even modern people look back at what happened and look at these stories of what had happened, and they say to themselves, well, you know, people in those days, they just believed that kind of superstitious stuff. We now know this stuff doesn't happen now, but that doesn't fit either, because it seems like everyone was surprised... (laughs) by the message that the angels bring, brought. Everyone is sort of blown away by this idea, so clearly there's nothing. God becoming man was just as strange to that set of group of people as it was for us. But there's actually an ancient heresy you may not be aware of that is implied in the objection uh, that Jesus w- was a real person. When people object to the thought of, their, of Jesus being a real person, we call those people Gnostics. And of all of the sort of enemies of the gospel that the New Testament is kind of shadowboxing throughout it, the Gnostics are one of the chief problems. Uh, The Gnostic was the one who believed that the spiritual world was the real world and superior to the material world that we live in. Uh, Growth, if you were a Gnostic, was kind of freeing yourself from the confines of physical life. Therefore, true spirituality was sort of moving away from the earthly, sort of uh, mundane, fleshly things. For the Gnostic, the journey of life was to discover a a hidden knowledge. That's where the word Gnostic comes from, is from the knowledge. And that knowledge is simply that immaterial things uh, are the real, true part of our nature, and that our flesh has got to be denied or succumbed to in order to live the real life. And the truth of the matter is, is this generation has been schooled in Gnosticism without actually realizing it. And we were schooled by none other than Yoda on the, on the, on the, in the Dagobah system where he's meeting with Luke. And there while he's doing his training, Yoda says this. He says, look at me. Judge me by my size, do you? And well, you should not. For my ally is the force and a powerful ally it is. Life creates it, makes it grow. Its energy, energy surrounds us and binds us. Luminous beings are we not this crude matter. Now, what's the crude matter that Yoda's talking about right there? It's our bodies. It's our flesh. You're not that. You are not this physical existence. You are this immaterial sort of luminous idea. That's Gnosticism. And what I find fascinating is the way some of those principles have kind of crept their way into even our thinking. 
And my main evidence for this are the kinds of questions that I fielded for 25 years in campus ministry. So clearly our children have been asking these questions. Maybe they learned it from us. Let me give you a couple of examples. My first one. I often got the question, so less, like in heaven, are we going to know each other? What's implied in the question? What's implied in the question is, well, you know, because when we're in heaven, where things are perfect, we won't have bodies. So how will we recognize one another? Hmm. Some people might also say, well, you know, Les, I've always struggled with the fact that if God really wants us to believe in him so badly, why is he always hiding? Why all the cloak and dagger and the invisibility? Which, of course, it never occurs to them that it's fundamental to Christian teaching is that Jesus came to stop God from hiding, that he, he showed up in the flesh. It never occurs to people that it may not be God that's doing the hiding. It might be us that are doing the hiding. You know, and lastly, I get the question all the time, you know, I'm struggling with why it is God won't just take this besetting sin of mine away. Why won't he just snap his fingers and make it gone? We, we pray for him to do something, but don't you see that that's almost a prayer for God to do something in the immaterial world, the magic transformation, when God's way has always been to work in our lives, in our daily choices, not in the immaterial world. But here comes the Christmas story, the story of the incarnation. That word just means to take on flesh. And my whole point this morning is this. The incarnation is a direct assault on Gnostic thinking. And as it turns out, Gnostic thinking is one of the things that robs Christians of joy. And so we've got to work this out. So therefore, I just want to throw out and throw off the normal uh, outline for you this morning by, by changing it up a little bit. I want to present to you two facts that come from the Christmas story. And then I want to see if we can draw three implications from that story. You got that? Two facts. Three implications. Let's jump into it. First of all, we see that Jesus came in poverty. That's the first one. You know, you're going to have to sort of plow your way through some sort of encrusted cultural pictures here. Um, because when we hear the Christmas story, we oftentimes have not necessarily heard what's really being said. And, and one of the first ones that we can sort of work against is the idea, there's really nothing in the text to suggest that Jesus was born in a barn. Um, most peasant houses we do know in that day actually had a lower platform uh, in their homes on the side of their house where they would bring the animals in at night. And alongside the steps down to that platform, there were often little hollowed out places that they called mangers where they laid the baby Jesus. Now, I'm not saying to go home and destroy your mother's nativity scene that she put out uh, every year for Christmas. But I am saying that the more that we've romanticized that moment with you know, the moonbeams coming down the baby Jesus and, and the cattle who are lowing, whatever that is, um, you oftentimes miss the point of the passage. And that is very simply that Jesus showed up among common people. He showed up among working class people. Blue collar entrance to this world Jesus had. Verse 8 mentions that there were shepherds out in the field at night. Had we written a modern version to that little line, we would have said something along the lines of, you know, there were some truckers in a truck stop eating greasy food at midnight. These were working class, earthy people that he came to. I mean, it's an amazing thought when you realize how humble this entrance was for this king. 
You know, last week we talked about the fact that this child has these incredible predictions made about it. So when we talked about that sort of earth-shattering, cataclysmic, dramatic, history-hinging event that Jesus was going to show up in, what did you expect? My guess is that it wasn't to come through a poor, unwed mother. I mean, Mary was the wrong social class. Mary is the wrong gender even, we'll find out later on. And in the wrong circumstance for anybody to consider her to be a revolutionary, much less to give birth to a revolutionary. And the angels are assuring us that he was. So that's the first fact, that Jesus came in poverty. The second fact I want you to notice is, but that he also came in glory. I mean, the messages that you get surrounding this child are astounding. The first thing we find out that he is the Savior. Finally, there's someone here to bring us rescue from sin and from misery, and even as it turns out, our mortality. He's assured that he is the Christ. Christ there is that sort of New Testament translation for the Old Testament word Messiah, which was who? The Messiah was the long expected one. The one you've been waiting for is here. And then, most astoundingly, they assign, the angel assigns the name to Jesus of Lord. Now, the reason why that's so jaw-dropping is because in the chapter just before, the angel or the announcement about Jesus there is that God is the only Lord. And the Lord was used to describe the God of Israel. And so from the very beginning, right out of the flesh, we find out that God has come in the flesh and that the deity of this tiny, tiny child is being heralded. The deity of a child. Look, you really ought to just take a minute to wrap your mind around this. God showed up. He invaded humankind in a baby. Frankly, it's almost embarrassing to admit the watching world that we believe this stuff. (laughs) You know, you walk in and we want to go and tell people that God is mighty to save, that he wants to do something in and for and to help you. And what do we do? We take them to an ancient town and show them a baby with dirty diapers in a food trough and claim that he's the savior of the world. Um, I just I simply want to say to the Christians here, you do realize the world thinks you are crazy for believing this. It's jaw-dropping. But I'll bet you that if you can grasp and wrap your mind around this theme, you're going to see it in a lot of other places because you're going to realize that in the Bible, God seems to have this penchant for saving the strong with the weak. It's actually everywhere in the Old Testament. My, my favorite version of it comes in the story of David and Goliath. Uh, the tragedy is, in the story of David and Goliath, uh, we oftentimes walk away as the lesson from that story being, and you know, we all need to slay the giants in our life. That's not the message of David and Goliath. I think the message actually comes out of Goliath's own mouth. In uh, 1 Samuel 17, when all of a sudden he sees the tiny shepherd boy that's come up to face this you know, massive soldier, this is what he says. He says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? I mean, that's the idea here. <laughs> I mean, don't be so hard on Goliath because it would be normal for someone who heard all of the big talk we made last week about worldwide revelation to be kind of disappointed when we say, yeah, exactly, and it's going to happen here among a collection of sort of country rednecks in a peasant's house, in a feed trough. 
But here's the deal. This is going on over and over again in the Bible. You know, we start with God choosing the Israelites, not because they were the most numerous, but because they were the, the fewest. You know, later on you find that Jacob and Esau, you know, Esau's the older son. He's supposed to be the heir. But as it turns out, Esau ends up serving his younger brother Jacob in God's economy. And of course, when you're speaking of King David, it's not King Saul, as handsome, as tall as he may be, that's going to lead the people of Israel. It's King David, the ruddy-looking shepherd boy that's going to lead God's people. What I'm saying is, is there's this reverse inertia in the Old Testament where everywhere it seems God is telling His people, I know that you tend to want to look around you and see the world in the way you think it works. Because your eyes are fixated on the big, the loud, uh, the impressive, the glorious. But I want you to know that I'm working through the nooks and crannies. I'm in there working in the little corners of human history that are beyond the world's vain gaze. And so what happens when a Christian starts to take this in, you begin to see the world differently. The Bible is full of divine irony. I mean, the Christmas story is everything you would want, but it's nothing that you would expect. You know, there's this angelic, mighty choir who is singing music I'm sure like no one has ever heard in a truck stop. You've got a king who has finally returned to save his long-forgotten people, and you can find him in a peasant's house. It's almost as if the highest spiritual truth has become cloaked in the most ordinary physical world. The idealist has now met the realist. The hopeful has met the cynical. Heaven has broken into earth. And so my simple point is, is the facts of the Christmas story are a direct assault on trying to say that the earthiness of life does not matter. It's just the opposite. As a matter of fact, that's where God tends to show up. Okay, so what? Sounds fine, Les. You're awfully cooked up about this. Why would this, why would this matter at all? Well, I want to see if we can draw out three implications from this story that we can take as a takeaway from it. The first one is this. If the Christmas story is true, it means that grace matters. Grace matters. You know, verse 21 says that the child's name was to be Jesus. If you literally translate that, it means the Lord is Savior. And so I would submit to you this morning that like even from Jesus' name, you start to get a glimpse into what the incarnation means because there's something that we miss in this that actually is utterly unique to Christianity. You see, in every other world religion, the way that you're involved in that religion is that you're basically told what it is that you must do in order to save yourself. That's the message of every other world religion. But in Christianity... It is God who takes the initiative to come and save us. Jesus did not come. He was not showing up to make our salvation possible contingent on our obedience to Him or contingent on our performance for Him or perhaps contingent on our deep sincerity to try to follow Him as well as we can. No, Jesus showed up to actually save His people. Salvation, the Christmas Christmas story, is not something that we sort of cooperate with God to attain. No, it's something He does for His people. And you'll know when you've actually heard this true gospel, when you begin to realize people have a problem with this. This is hard. Because when you come, you come for complete salvation from Jesus, or you don't come at all. 
Uh, R.C. Sproul was the first one I ever heard say that, yeah, the incarnation is not a compliment. Jesus having to come is nothing flattering about you because what he's basically saying is there is something so profoundly wrong with you that the only way to remedy it is if God actually shows up himself and saves you contrary to your own desires. Actually, later on in Luke's gospel, Jesus is going to explain to us that very few are willing to face that kind of assault on their pride. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) you got to set every bit of pride away if you're going to come and engage in a salvation that's like that. Why? Because Jesus is a Savior. If you're going to come to Jesus, you have to begin by admitting that I am a total and complete spiritual failure. But the reason why this strikes me as interesting is, is I feel like Does it occur to you that the city of Oxford and even the university community were almost hardwired to keep us from owning that fact? You know, it's almost as if we've we've drunk our own Kool-Aid and we get a chance at sense of our souls of being like, yeah, there's a little bit to to fix up here or there, but, but my soul is just as wonderful and as quaint as a cool fall evening on the square. When the truth of the matter is, what's going on inside betrays that point, isn't it? We know the struggles we have on the inside. We know our families are coming apart. We know that our children can barely stand to look at us, they're so angry. We know we don't feel as pretty or popular as we hoped we would be. We know we're not as cool or funny or interesting as we want everyone to think that we are. We hate our jobs, and we wish so badly that people would look at us as more of a success. That's what's really going on behind the thin veneer. But you know what's funny? There's a handful of us that will discover that owning this fact, letting the truth of that brokenness hit you, is actually the path to freedom. Because if it's true, it means that Jesus came to take the pressure off. You know, for a lot of people, they look at themselves and they're like, well, you know, I've done a couple things wrong, and I really need to get back in good with God. And God kind of comes to us and says, huh, All right, you sure you're ready to do that? Because step number one might be a tough pill to swallow for you. (laughs) I used to tell college students, it's a little bit like, God doesn't treat us like our mamas did. You know, mamas, this is how you tell a good mama. You went up to your mom and you're like, Mama, I'm ugly. And what did she say? Oh, no, you are not. You are the most precious, handsome boy ever. You're the most lovely little princess I've ever seen. You go to God and you're like, you know, I feel like there's just some things in my life they shouldn't be there. There's sin going on. And Jesus is like, yeah. And you know what? There's a ton more where that came from. (laughs) It's an assault on one's part. You know, it's a little bit like um, it reminded me of something that I'm in the middle of a journey on. Uh, So it turns out that my doctors told me that I have a a history, a family of heart disease in my family. So I needed to lose a few extra pounds here and there. And so I've been trying to sort of look down and deal with diet questions and whatnot. And I've been realizing that uh, all the sort of books are telling me that I've got to increase my water intake. Well, that was counterintuitive because I thought like water retention was something you were trying to, to get rid of when you were dealing with uh, your weight loss, right? Well, here's the crazy thing. So I read on the internet, which means it must be true. All the doctors would be like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> if you drink more water, that actually helps you with your water retention. And I thought to myself, okay, there we go. When I come to Jesus and I'm worried about my sin, he's like, mm, it's a whole lot worse you got to go further into that before you ever find the way out on the other side. The point is, the very thing that's bothering you may be the thing that you need to take the biggest dose of in order to find relief. 
reminded me a little bit of my favorite J.I. Packer quote, where he really talks about the joy of being on rock bottom from his book, Knowing God. Favorite all-time quote in Christianity, right here. He says, there is a tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point upon a prior knowledge of the worst in me, so that there is no discovery that can delusion him about me in the way in which I am so often disillusioned about myself and I quench his determination to bless me. Jesus' coming means that grace matters. It means that it matters. Secondly, though, it means that others matter. We oftentimes miss this, but we have a story of a God who enters in, who comes and joins His people. And so what that means is the chief instinct of God's followers are to be those who enter in. Jesus did not just come to win a new spiritual state for me where I can go to heaven when I die. No, Jesus came to me so that I could then be His agent to move into the lives of real people. And it occurs to me that sin does just the opposite, does it not? Sin comes with an inertia that wants me to isolate myself, to sort of focus on what I'm thinking and not on what I'm doing. That's the sinful thing. And I think it's mildly tragic that the minute that we talk about moving into the life of other people, we instantly think about, well, going and getting them to pray prayers to ask Jesus in their hearts so we can be their Savior. That's what it means to move to people's lives. Well, is that all it is? Is it not, though, moving into people's life to embody Jesus' love in the way I behave, in the conversations I have, in my my sense of working against the isolation and moving into the ugliness of life? I have a favorite scene from a favorite movie. Uh, Y'all remember the movie As Good As It Gets, the Jack uh, Nicholson uh, uh, favorite? One of the central characters there is played by Helen Hunt, and her name is Carol. And Carol's life is a mess. You know, uh, she's trying to hold down the fort as a waitress uh, while raising a a 10-year-old boy who has severe asthma. Well, the movie goes along, and at one point, she actually finds a boy that'll take her out on a date. (laughs) So the boy comes over to her house and kind of is introduced to the chaos that is her life. And, of course, the 10-year-old boy has an asthma attack while he's there. And, of course, as he sort of works through it, he ends up, he ends up throwing up uh, on her date. <laughs> and there's this moment where the date kind of starts to back away. And she was like, what, what, what? It's just a little spit up. You're okay. And as he walks towards the, day, or towards the, <laughs> towards the door, he's like, you know what? I think I'm going to call a cab because this just feels like a little too much reality for a Friday night. You ever felt that way, parents? It's a little too much reality for a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. It's every night, let's face it. But here's what, here's what the incarnation means. It means that God never says, this is too much reality for me. And what happens is, is it, it empowers God's people to move into those messy places of life, to never have to say that. Say, this is where God has called us to be. You know, you can look down on the fact that Jesus showed up in a truck stop with an unwed mother in a poor part of town. Until the moment that you realize that you're sitting here this morning with hope in your heart because of those people. It changes the way you look at the poor. It changes the way you look at the broken in your community. That's what Christians have always been known for. 
Thirdly and finally, and I'll finish with this, it means that my life matters. Grace matters, others matter, and my life matters. Because frankly, I'm intimidated by that whole notion. You know, I was sharing with the youth group this week that, that I grew up with a way of kind of separating myself from the painful parts of life. I wanted to sort of move away. And the, I struggle with where you get the power to enter into another person's life. Well, let me offer a simple thought to you by asking you this question. Why would God choose to come to earth in this way? Why would he come to ordinary, mundane things in the fields? Well, well, go back to the shepherd's fields. Because what you get there is this overwhelming display of glory. There are glorious moments in Jesus' life where it's punctuated with this overwhelmingly powerful sense of shining, luminescent glory. And what you realize is that would not be very interesting except for the fact that these early Christians got the sense that because salvation was about being in Christ, they were in store for the same glory. That is, what Jesus was experiencing is, is exactly what God wants to share with His people. The first Christians read the doctrine of exchange in these early stories. That's not just Jesus that's in store for that. That's me. And so now we have a way of sort of phrasing the gospel in one sentence. Try this on for size. God became ordinary so that He could make you famous before the only people that it matters. God became poor so that we became rich. That's actually a Bible verse. God became obscure so that you could be known. Look, in Christmas, Jesus has drawn near. And you want to know why? Because He was real. Jesus was real. And Gnosticism robs us of that joy. I wonder how many of you have ever read C.S. Lewis's little book, The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce is a little um, a fictional story of a group of people from hell who take a bus ride up to heaven uh, to let the people from heaven try to talk them out of going back to hell. Okay? That's the way it works. But here's the thing. The people from hell, they don't want to stay. There's a long list of reasons why they don't want to stay, but one of the main reasons is, is every time they walk on the grass in heaven, it hurts their feet. And Lewis goes on to explain that the reason why it hurt their feet is because in hell you are less solid than you are when you're in heaven. As a matter of fact, the people from hell refer to the beings that they see in heaven as the solid ones. What's Lewis trying to say? Lewis is trying to say that to come to Christ is to actually let my life stop being what sin makes it, which is porous. Things flowing through me without actually grabbing onto something. Sin robs us of a sense of meaning in life. It makes us vaporous, ethereal. You feel a little bit like Bilbo (laughs) at the beginning of the, uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Fellowship of the Ring where he says to Gandalf, Gandalf, I just feel thin. I feel stretched like like butter scraped across too much bread. You ever felt that way? Is it possible that it's sin spreading you thin and you're dissolving? You feel like we said a couple weeks ago you're just becoming invisible. But here's the the good news for you. (laughs) Jesus was real. He showed up in flesh and blood to redeem us and to change us. Sounds like an invitation to me. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would you draw near to us now? Yes, we long for you to move spiritually in us, to give us that that inward impression that you are near. But it may also be true 
that we need you to draw near with the people that are sitting in the pew next to us. So Lord Jesus, would you do that in us now as we come to your table? Draw near to us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.